Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today on We the People, we're sharing a great conversation from an event hosted by the National Constitution Center in the spring in Coral Gables, Florida. The question we asked of our panelists was, is the First Amendment enough in today's world of Twitter, disinformation, and polarized media? The guests were journalists Kimberly Atkins-Store of the Boston Globe, David French of The Dispatch, Ellie Belshi of MSNBC, and the legal scholar Larry Kramer, president of the William Flora Hewlett Foundation. Enjoy the show. So I'm going to jump right in with the topic that Doug framed so well. Is the First Amendment enough? Or as Larry Kramer just asked as we were walking up here, is the First Amendment too much? And the focus of this panel is social media and whether we are living in James Madison's worst nightmare. So in Federalist 55, Madison said, in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. The entire Madisonian constitution is designed to slow down deliberation so that passionate factions or mobs, which Madison defines as any group, a majority or a minority, animated by passion rather than reason, devoted to self-interest rather than the public good, the goal is to prevent them from mobilizing. Madison had faith that the republic was so big that by the time mobs found each other, they would be exhausted and go home, and passion would fade and reason would prevail. Madison also had faith that new media technology, the broadside newspaper, would allow enlightened journalists, like a group of uh, Atlantic editors, to slowly disseminate reason throughout the land so that citizens could read complicated arguments in the Federalist Papers and debate them and make up their own minds. It's obvious that we are living in the antithesis of the Madisonian Republic in so many ways on social media with its business model that some have called enraged to engage, passion travels faster and further than reason, mobs can mobilize quickly, and the possibility of reason deliberation is elusive. We're going to solve that problem on this panel and figure out what some possible solutions would be. And I'll jump right in with this question. As Doug said, we had a really meaningful discussion when we inaugurated the First Amendment tablet, which began with this question, which I'm going to pose to the group. Is Elon Musk right about Twitter? And should Twitter voluntarily choose to follow First Amendment standards? I'll kick things off in the interest of full disclosure and saying I just wrote a piece for The Atlantic saying Elon Musk is right. And although Twitter's not obliged to follow the First Amendment, it should. Because First Amendment standards, which say that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, with exceptions like punishment for deliberately false speech and defamation and speech that causes tangible harm uh, is correct because the four reasons that the Supreme Court has given for protecting free speech, freedom of conscience, democratic accountability, the discovery and spread of truth, and political participation all apply to the same degree online as in real space. In Philadelphia, we had three strong civil libertarians who agreed with that position. This is a diverse panel, and I know from reading your work that there's going to be far more 
disagreement about that question. So I'm just going to go in order. And David French, I'll begin by asking you, should Elon Musk voluntarily follow the First Amendment? As a general matter, yes. But to quote the Prince's Bride, uh, that does not necessarily mean what you think it means. <laughs> um, there is a, a, a sort of this, for those who are not familiar with First Amendment jurisprudence and First Amendment uh, guidelines, there's sort of this sense that the First Amendment means anything goes. And that essentially if you're going to say, well, Twitter complies with First Amendment guidelines, that means that Twitter becomes gab, okay, which is purports to do purports to follow First Amendment guidelines. And Gab is not a social media platform that some of you may not have ever heard of Gab in this room. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's an absolute sewer, and people don't like to swim in sewers. Sewers are not necessarily super viable in the marketplace. But what does it mean to say, as a general matter, you're going to follow First Amendment principles while still maintaining Twitter as a place where... Uh, people will want to be, or at least not hate it so much that they finally reject it. I hate it so much, but I'm not yet rejecting it, is my position on Twitter. What that means is when you're in a First Amendment-protected world, like, let's say a college campus. College campuses are one of the places where the First Amendment is at kind of the apex of its protection. There are still things like time, place, and manner restrictions that pop into place that allow people, to example, sleep in peace at their college, protect them from uh, intentionally, personally targeted harassment, regardless of viewpoint at their college. So for example, an example I've long given is at college I can stand in the quad and I can yell no blood for oil, like the, the protests in the run up to the Iraq war, all I want. But if I'm doing it at two in the morning, screaming outside an ROTC student's uh, bedroom, that's gonna be harassment not on the basis of viewpoint, not because it's bad to say no blood for oil, but because the time, place, and manner of the speech can be lawfully regulated in favor of other interests. And so what I find interesting when you're talking about the people who are saying First Amendment, First Amendment, First Amendment, and I'm broadly in agreement with that, is that you don't realize that consistent with the First Amendment, there can still be regulations that would actually, in many ways, make some of the people who argue the loudest for the First Amendment unhappy such as sharply rolling back the ability to engage in targeted individual harassment, regardless of viewpoint, for example. Sharply including any kind of expression that you think would be called intentional infliction of emotional distress. Again, a common law concept consistent with the First Amendment. And so when people think about that, they often aren't, are thinking, I'm going to make Twitter where anything goes. I think of a First Amendment regime as one that's much more related to overall viewpoint neutrality, but is not quite the free-for-all that everyone thinks. Just one other example, and I'll stop my little entry filibuster, is that um, you know FCC guidelines on broadcast television are consistent with the First Amendment, but they don't allow for nudity, for example. They don't allow for certain kinds of language, for example. And so it's a much more complicated issue. And I think when people talk about First Amendment and social media, what they generally are referring to is kind of a protection from a sort of blatant viewpoint neutrality. Uh, that's what they're really referring to. 
But if they think that a First Amendment protective regime would lead to unmitigated, unrelenting sorts of harassment, you can do something about that in the First Amendment context. And one last thing, Jeff, you didn't disappoint. I was about to start my remarks by saying, this is the, officially the longest I'm in Jeff's presence without him quoting one of the Federalist Papers. <laughs> and you just went ahead and quoted a Federalist Paper, so. <laughs> I, I didn't want to dis disappoint. And that's a very helpful intervention. And you remind us that you can broadly respect First Amendment values while formulating uh, Twitter and social media guidelines that would allow for the punishment of targeting harassment and other forms of tangible harm, including intentional infliction of emotional distress consistent with the First Amendment. Larry Kramer, head of the Hewlett Foundation, just a, a hero among constitutional scholars whose book, The People Themselves, changed the way we thought about popular constitutionalism and how, from the time of the founding on, uh, public opinion has been formed. He's gonna be great on uh, our next panel about political violence, and now I wanna ask you, Larry Kramer, should Elon Musk voluntarily follow the First Amendment or not? Yes. So. Um, I, I had that little jibe about, is the First Amendment too much? Because yes, there's more room than many people think, but there's very limited room to regulate under the First Amendment. So the question, I'm going to reformulate it a little, right, which is, should Elon Musk do no more than the First Amendment would absolutely require or permit? Because obviously, you can regulate and choose to do a lot less. And the current First Amendment is still pretty narrow in the kind of regulation it would permit government to impose. So, for instance, harassment has to be of a particular individual who suffers a particular harm, and, and so on. So, you know, my view on, on this and on rights generally is, so, so first, there's no such thing as a universal right that is the same across all time and all circumstances. There's an abstract value that it embodies that gets played out and is reflected differently under changing circumstances. Our First Amendment doctrine is very different in the 18th, 19th. The doctrine we're talking about now that people sort of take as if it was universally true and always true is something that emerged in the middle, late 20th century under a particular set of circumstances, and those circumstances have changed. So, you know, the example I like to give for, you know, forget the First Amendment, think about tort law. In the 19th century, you have a whole body of tort law that develops, it's got familiar doctrines, you know, proximate causation and uh, a rule for damages and a rule for duty and all of those different things. And we think of the sort of cost-benefit analysis that is inherent in figuring out the application of that right in particular circumstances with the kinds of arguments lawyers make. But it also rests on an implicit cost-benefit analysis, which is kind of invisible because it's just the world as it's given. So those explicit doctrines reflect a kind of balance that people understand. And then when the world changes dramatically, you can't stick to that. So in the 19th century, you know, you require privity. Um, you say workers assume the risk in their employment and all sorts of doctrines that may have made sense. By the time the second industrial revolution is over and you're into the 20th century, the world has changed radically. And you can't just stick with those same doctrines. So we reinvent them to fit the changed circumstances because you know, it's one thing when people are riding around on horses and buggies and not too many people are getting hurt on the highways and they're not moving all that fast. And another thing when you've got people in cars and suddenly lots and lots of people are dying and the buggies are made to order and the cars are being mass produced and so on. So we change things because of the changed circumstances and what it does to the implicit assumption. Same thing has happened in our speech regime. So for various historical reasons, a particular structure of technology emerges in the post-World War I era, in the mid-20th century, in which people are not getting exposed, very few people are getting exposed to a lot of really bad information, right? 
Um, and that's because it's coming through a set of major newspapers that are actually in this period governed by pretty high standards for journalistic integrity. Uh, you have the beginnings of broadcast media, but there's you know these networks that sort of function by the same rules. There's some bad stuff out there. You know, you can the Communist Party has a paper, the John Birch Society has a paper. Um, there's the news, the supermarket tabloids, but everybody understands what those are. And so in that world, you can indulge a Brandeisian statement like, you know, the solution to bad speech is more speech because actually very few people are getting exposed to that much bad speech. Well, the technologies of the, of the 21st century have just upended that. It's just no longer the case. Much like, you know, the 20th century is like people moving around on horses and buggies. In the 21st century, it's like cars. And suddenly, huge numbers of people are being exposed to horrible information and not necessarily targeted individuals. But the cumulative effects are disastrous for democracy. I mean, just disastrous. And so the notion that you're not going to rethink your free speech norms to allow much more aggressive regulation under those circumstances. So for instance, um, the Supreme Court has allowed the regulation of false speech only in very narrow categories and not as a general matter, right? And the reasons for that may have made sense when you didn't have too many people being exposed. But at this point, I would extend that protection and say, actually, with a kind of actual malice standard, not just public figures, but any information on public issues in which the speaker is you know, either knowingly or intentionally distributing false information ought to be punishable. And we ought to extend that liability to the, to the platforms, but we can do it in ways that deal with the problem that the platforms have. So the, if I'm Twitter and I've got, what, 15 million tweets a day, probably more than that. If I'm Facebook, I've got like a billion users a day. I can't possibly police that. But there are easy ways to handle that. For instance, take the 230, Section 230, the Communications Decency Act. Instead of saying it's an all or nothing, either you're liable for everything or you're liable for nothing, say you're liable for, say, distributing false speech, but the liability is going to be one one-thousandth of a penny per retweet or share or like or whatever it is, so that you really only need to police the things that are going viral. And we know they can do that. They're doing that, um, you know, and so on. So there's lots of solutions that we could come up with, but we have to first take the step of recognizing that we actually do need to police speech more because that world where we only had to worry about sliding down the slope of government regulation and the possible bad things that could happen from that has now been changed so that we have to worry about sliding down the other slope of too little regulation and the bad things that are happening from that. Fascinating. In the very specific proposals for reform, including making it easier to punish intentionally false speech, which, as you say, would require a rethinking of some Supreme Court cases, our guardrails of democracy teams that you'll be hearing more about throughout this weekend have endorsed a version of that. The progressive team agrees with you about the need to criminalize intentionally false speech. And that idea of allowing fines against viral stuff is also really constructive. As I introduce Kimberly Atkins' store, find the great quote that you had about Twitter, Kimberly's superb commentary has cast so much light on central constitutional questions. And she said in a great piece about Elon Musk and Twitter rules, I don't think Twitter is a public square. Only a small population of folks are even on Twitter. Elon Musk seems not to understand how free speech works because Twitter is a private firm and they can do what they want. And now I will ask you to say more about whether or not you think Elon Musk should follow the First Amendment. Yes, yeah, so um, I will start by praising your essay, which I thought was very thoughtful and made me think in a lot of ways. And I 
agree with your assessment that the First Amendment should be applied to something like Twitter, but I think that that's in theory. And I spend a great deal of time focused on how principles of the Constitution, legal principles, historic principles, apply in real life today to real people. And I just can't figure out a way that that would happen. First of all, I would say I don't have any reason to believe that well, I don't know. I don't know if Elon Musk understands what the First Amendment is and exactly how it works and what his version of the First Amendment would be. So I will start with that. I'm not sure it would be the same as yours, including the fact that we were talking about you know, regulating things like intentional misrepresentation or intentional false speech. And one of the people who he apparently wants to bring back to Twitter seems to do that a lot. So I'm not sure that is um, the way it works. But I think about... Twitter, and I think about the Madison and, and um, Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and Brandeis and what they thought about as what I think Elon Musk thinks he's talking about, which is this free exchange of ideas, this marketplace of ideas where everybody should have the ability to speak, there should not be censorship, the good speech will win out over the bad speech, and the bad speech will educate the those who believe in the good speech, and everybody comes to their own conclusions. And that's a wonderful idea. The problem is that has rarely existed in that pure form in the actual public squares that have existed over our the, the history of our nation let alone a place like Twitter that is literally built to not allow that to happen. What that theory doesn't take into account is the fact that just fundamentally the analytics of Twitter keeps it from being, aside from the fact, yes, it is a private place and the First Amendment doesn't apply, but beyond that argument, the analytics of Twitter prevents it from being that kind of marketplace because it depends upon amplifying certain speech and tamping down others, making other speech harder to find and amplifying certain kinds of speech. So for a marketplace to work, and you can speak about this, I thought about you when I was thinking about this, it needs to be, if it's really free trade of ideas, that free trade has to work. But when you have external manipulators of that marketplace, then it can't work in the truest form in the way that Madison envisioned. So one of the algorithms of Twitter and other social media is the more people get engaged on a certain topic and it starts to trend, the bigger it gets visibly to those who are using that platform, even if it is a very minority point or a very minority thought. That's leaving aside the fact that less than a quarter of Americans even use Twitter. So you're talking about a minority of a minority of folks that are getting a lot uh, of amplification. And so then that spreads. Then we start talking about it in the media. Then other people start talking. And it becomes so much bigger. And it's not an even exchange. People are not on the same level when they're doing that. So that's one problem with thinking about it in that way. Um, another problem that exists, I think, beyond Twitter is that we've had a history of an external market manipulation where certain groups of people, certain underserved folks, marginalized folks, do not have the same First Amendment rights, free speech rights, free speech access to the marketplace as other people. And that can keep really bad ideas. I mean, if the whole idea is that bad ideas are rooted out by good ones, bad ideas are rooted out by reason, by logic, um, then why do horrible, horrible ideas 
hateful ideas, things like white supremacy, why is that still in existence as strong as it is in 2022? It's because that viewpoint has been protected and favored in large ways from the founding when black folks were, it was criminalized for them to learn to read and write so that they could not engage in the free exchange of ideas all the way up to today when you have debates in schools about what books should be banned because people don't want students to talk about things like the history of our country and racism and in the LGBTQ community and other things. So certain speech has always been favored over others and so it's not even, you don't have that even exchange. So I don't know what the solution is in a place like Twitter, if that can be a sort of laboratory to figure this out. I, I think perhaps things more in line of antitrust principles, which deal with the artificial manipulation of markets, could be maybe a good experiment um, to go with, in addition to all the other good ideas that are presented. I'm, I'm mostly here on this panel to hear uh, everybody else's ideas and throw that in, but I just think from a fundamental standpoint, there are so many problems with the marketplace of ideas, the way that it works in actuality, and certainly the way that it works on social media. Thank you for that powerful, rich answer, for pointing out the ways in which the Holmesian marketplace fails, for pointing to Brandeis-like solutions like antitrust, and also reminding us of the central stain of those market failures in American history from the criminalization of the free speech of African Americans uh, and abolitionists to hate speech. Uh, and that spirit of learning is exactly what we're doing on this panel, so that's great. Ali Velshi, a member of the Board of Trustees of the National Constitution Center, just tireless promoter for constitutional debate and partner for these constitutional clips that we're doing every week to try to spread light. So grateful for your engagement. You too have talked about Twitter and asked, is Twitter the new town square? On Real Time with Bill Maher, you said, I think what Musk needs to think about is our democracy, which is struggling at the moment, relies on an informed electorate, and that's always been a problem for us historically. Ali, should Elon Musk follow the First Amendment or not? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm the odd man out on this uh, panel, largely because I'm way in over my skis and visually supported by the fact that I'm the only person within a 10-square-mile area wearing a tie. <laughs> um, but I did say on that same episode with Bill Maher, and I, I say this every time I talk about this, I think Elon Musk is actually a genius. I think he's one of the smartest people on earth. I think he's, he's moved the needle on electric vehicles. He's moved the needle on space, which is why I'm also puzzled as, as Kimberly is. I don't think he understands the discussion. I think he's having the wrong discussion. So, you know, to the point of, of Twitter or, or social media as a marketplace of ideas, what has escaped people, I think, is, is two issues. One is when you think about it from an um, antitrust perspective. I know we've got some friends here from Yale. If you go to the School of Management at Yale, there's a beautiful graphic illustration in the lobby of the history of antitrust legislation in the United States. But it's all got to do with regulating the cost of the provision of services, right? So you can regulate anything that you can put a cost 
uh, associated costs to cable TV, oil, whatever the case is. We've not been able to figure that out for information. Once we realize, and, and, and you implied this a little bit, Larry, what, once we figure out that there's a cost to information and or misinformation or, or data or you know, whatever this stuff is, then it can fall into the realm of thinking about how do you regulate that. But antitrust legisl legislation might be an interesting idea, but we've got to figure out that information has a price or a value or a cost. And you know, we haven't figured out that carbon in the air has a cost yet. So uh, we're, we're away, a little way away from that. And the other point that you made was the algorithms. It feels like it's free, right? Everybody can tweet anything they want all the time, but one person's tweet is not going as far as another person's tweet. And, and so it's not actually fair. It's not like everybody's in a room uh, yelling out whatever they want to yell out. Some people are getting promoted through algorithms. And if, David, if you're talking about Twitter or social media being a sewer, part of the problem with Twitter is it's the sewer for the high-end zip code. Right? It's journalists and politicians who are on it. So everything's got this outsized uh, effect when it happens on Twitter. It, it almost feels like Elon Musk is just sore about the way Twitter has done things, and because he's got the wealth to be able to do something about it, he will. It's not so well thought out. And part of the thing that I think he needs to be thinking about, and I wish that you all would just consult with him, um, is that the issue here is not actually freedom of speech or the First Amendment. It's velocity of the spread of information that is damaging to democracy. And whether or not the law prevents him from doing it should be secondary to a guy who's as smart as he is. He should be sitting there saying, if he wants this to be this remarkable arena for the exchange of ideas in a powerful fashion, he has to take into account all of those things that, that this panel has talked about, the speed of disinformation, the remarkable damage that that, that disinformation and misinformation have done to democracies right now, including the war that we are watching in Ukraine, mm -hmm. but also including the war in Rwanda, including the war in the Balkans, including Germany before the Holocaust, right? This is, disinformation has always been a powerful tool. It just moves now at a velocity that we've never been able to understand. And, and to the extent that Madison and those who thought that slowing the deliberation down or the idea that things will be published and people will read them would help, I don't think he was wrong. I just think that we have now moved to a place where the spread of information does actually move faster than our brains can process it. We've actually jumped the shark on this one. And I wonder whether, I think the question is, should Elon Musk be thinking about doing more than the First Amendment? He seems to have this view that there are shackles on social media and unleashed, this will be a fantastic place in which ideals will flourish. What he has not realized is that this is mainly a sewer in which bad stuff spreads. It could be cleaned up, it could change, without taking bad ideas off. But in saying, can bad ideas, can sensationalistic stories, can fake news not be given the remarkable economic and technological advantage that the algorithms give it? That's what the problem is now. So th there's a really important, sophisticated discussion for Elon Musk to be a part of, and I feel like he's in the other room. He's having a different discussion about a different thing that isn't really the main issue. I don't think anybody wants censorship on social media, fundamentally, with all the caveats that you've all pointed out about how free free speech is. I think we're good with free speech. I think the First Amendment is actually enough. But like we've seen in the last five years, laws and, and the Constitution are not actually enough, no matter how well they are written. We all thought that we worked in an orderly society in which people were, were, were good actors and would generally do the right thing or the powers of good would overcome the, the, the powers of evil. I think that's what we're learning. The First Amendment are, is, a, is a beautiful amendment as part of a beautiful document that 
needs to be understood and in all of its sophistication. You and I, I don't know how many times we've had this conversation. You and I on TV, how many times have we had conversations around the First Amendment? The, the beauty of the First Amendment is it's probably better understood today than it has been in many, many years because the last few years have put such pressure and light on it. But to misunderstand that, that social media is about the velocity by which disinformation spreads. Social media is a high-speed disinformation spreading machine. That's the thing that needs to be fixed. I don't think it's a First Amendment issue. I actually think it's a, you could, fix, you, could, you could buy this, Elon Musk, and you could actually fix it and make it some kind of town square if you wanted to, expand its reach, give less provocative voices the ability to be heard, but that's not what he's trying to do. Superb intervention, Ali, and you so helpfully point us toward the challenge of slowing down bad speech. That's the Madisonian challenge, how to impose speed bumps and roadblocks so that passion rather than reason doesn't proliferate. And as you note, the answer may not be content moderation or censorship, but there are other things that can be done, technological and otherwise, that could address the problem. So let's take our next round on, on that question after a really wonderful first series of interventions. David, in his new piece in The Atlantic, Jonathan Haidt argues that there are technological solutions that the platforms could identify to slow down bad speech, including two in particular, uh, real name identification so that anonymous speech is harder to proliferate, which might moderate things, and also stickiness and sharing. Facebook could make you click twice before you share stuff rather than once, or cut and paste something which would make it harder to share false stuff, which tends to be shared more quickly without people reading it. If you had to identify two or three of the most constructive non-legal solutions to the problems of unreason online, what would they be? Uh, I'm generally not in favor of requiring people across all platforms to have real names. Uh, I think there's a historical value in anonymous speech and also, I used to have a lot of, spend some time on Facebook, which has a real name policy. It was nastier for me than Twitter because my high school classmates really didn't like my stance on Donald Trump. <laughs> and there's something particularly bad when like your you know, fellow basketball teammate in 1986 is wearing you out versus <laughs> deplorable Bob 7932. You know, like that's... So I'm not so sure about the real name policy, to be honest. I do think there's a value in anonymous speech. I think that anonymous speech has empowered a lot of endangered and, and marginalized communities, including the endangered and marginalized colonists prior to and during the American Revolution. So I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I do, however, think there are some steps that we could take to slow down velocity. And I agree that this velocity issue is a real issue. Just to put this in perspective, and, and we're focusing on Twitter because I think almost all of us in here are unfortunately on Twitter. I myself, I'm working on my dance moves to take my talents to TikTok, but that's <laughs> a few months away. But so I will take a look, like I write a piece, say, for The Atlantic or The Dispatch, and sometimes they just blow up on Twitter. And I'll go and I'll look at the tweet, which is leading to thousands of people just, just wearing you out, and I will see numbers like this. 2.9 million impressions, those are the views, the people have seen the tweet. 80,000 engagements, those are people who've commented on it, retweeted it. 3,000 link clicks. 
So 2.8 million people watch it, seen the tweet, and 3,000 have actually read the argument, and 80,000 people have commented or said something about it. What about you can't say one darn word or retweet it or quote tweet it unless you it. click through and you read the article? Yeah. That one little reform, that one little thing right there, you're talking, and that's, that's, not, that's not viewpoint discriminatory. That's completely consistent with a First Amendment style approach. You just gotta click. It's not a little reminder that annoys you that says, I'm gonna click through, I'm gonna reach quote tweet this anyway because I know I hate that guy. Just, you know, that kind of, uh, of reform, I think, is one that's, I think, particularly important. And, and I just have to totally agree with you that Elon Musk doesn't understand what he's got here. He thinks of Twitter's problem as Twitter's problem is, well, it censored the Babylon Bee, but not right. some other or not some other group or it's knocked off Trump, but not not some guy from Iran. Right. That's what he thinks the problem of Twitter is. That's, that's not the problem. That's not the problem. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, we could talk all day about it. Here's two things. One, Twitter is a festival of personal harassment. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why if people have huge platforms off Twitter, they don't spend much time on Twitter. It's uniquely unpleasant. And two, Twitter is deeply unrepresentative in ways that really distort right and left. Just to give you a sense of how unrepresentative Twitter is. If the average user of Twitter, which is a minority of Americans, by the way, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram is more popular, Pinterest is more popular. The general user of Twitter, if they were a state, they would be Hawaii or Vermont, the most democratic state in the union. If the power user of Twitter were a congressional district, it'd be Barbara Lee's in Berkeley. It'd be one of the second or third most progressive district in the country. And this distorts right and left in two really interesting ways. One, it causes a, a lot of folks, I think, on the left to sort of overestimate their cultural power. And it causes a lot of people on the right to underestimate, which causes them to feel embattled and besieged and enraged in a way that's completely out of proportion to the actual balance of power, both cultural and political in this country. And so I think that Twitter itself has a problem. And then I could go and we could talk about Instagram. Instagram isn't so much about politics, it's about what it's doing, for example, to teen girls. That's a different thing. Go to Facebook. It's not, again, it's not so much about, it's about what it's doing to like my Aunt Mary and my Uncle Bob, you know? They're different platforms with different cultures with different issues. And I think Musk is so, in a weird way, you can become so online, you don't even understand the platform anymore because you're just focused on the daily minutia. And he thinks if you just put Babylon B back on and you alter some of these like moderation unfairness issues, you solve problems. And I think that's just fundamentally missing it. Such an important reminder of the fact that the cultures of each of the platforms is different, calling for different solutions. And that central constructive solution, which I saw people writing down, you have to read it before you can share it, is so important. Facebook had experimented with only elevating on news feeds stuff that people actually read, and your suggestion that Twitter do the same is crucial. And one theme I expect to emerge from our two days here is that one of our greatest challenges, my, our dear friend, my teacher, Akhil Amar, is here, and he made me tear up on screen a few months ago when I asked him why the quality of debate was so much higher during the founding period than it is today. Ordinary citizens debating the Federalist Papers in a Madisonian way. And he said, Jeff, it's because people don't read anymore. 
my own students at Yale Law School don't read books. And if Akil's brilliant Yale Law students don't read, how can we expect those with far less privilege and opportunity to do the same? And I'll ask you all about that maybe in a, another round, but David, your suggestion that at least you've got to read the 140 characters before you can <laughs> share them is definitely a step in the right direction. Larry Kramer, you've thought so deeply on this. You had a Madisonian initiative at Hewlett. What are some constructive non-legal solutions? Sure. I, I have one I want to talk about, but a couple of prefatory points. So one is, as I say, I'm not thinking just about Twitter. I think I'm just thinking about all these platforms. And yes, they're all a little different, but they're all also fundamentally the same problem, which is this elimination of friction in the conveying of information and the use of algorithms to create unwitting audiences as opposed to people choosing in, in quite the same way. Um, one thing to remember, so for instance, if you go to the founding era, um, actually, by the way, I should say, I'm not sure I agree with you on the quality of debate. I mean, a debate among a certain group, sure, was great, but if you, you know, like really read, there was a whole lot of like junk and garbage then uh, as well, not surprising. Um, but there was also a massive amount of social deference. And that carries through the 19th century. You could have papers like they had in the 18th and 19th centuries that were made stuff we have today look positively, you know, highbrow. It didn't matter so much because the voters, whatever they were thinking, were still deferring to a leadership class that with its divisions was still fairly responsible. We become more democratic in the 20th century, really. And at that time, when also what emerges is a kind of responsible media. And so now we're in this funny place where we no longer have the responsible media and we no longer have the social deference. And that's what's really generating a lot of these problems. Second, I, I just have to make this point. Elon Musk may be a G. I, when I was at NYU, you. I was uh, talking to John Sexton, who was then the dean once, and he said he, he said we should admit Patrick Ewing to the law school. It came up for a reason. And I was like, why would you admit Patrick Ewing to the law school? And he said to me, anybody who can achieve that kind of excellence can achieve that kind of excellence here. And I said to him, John, by that theory, I should be on the New York Knicks, right? That is to say, the fact that you're excellent in one domain doesn't mean you have a clue in another. So I think Elon Musk's understanding of the First Amendment is juvenile. And so he's got to, you know, and I think it's important to just recognize that. He also has a lot of money, so he can impose his juvenile understandings on the rest of us. In terms of a solution, I, the other, if you think about what made this system work then in much of the 20th century was there was a kind of friction. That is to say, the John Birch Society paper was out there, the Communist Party paper was out there, the tabloids at the supermarket were out there, but I had to go get them. I had to subscribe to them, or I had to go to a newsstand and buy it. I had to make a little bit of effort myself. And what the platforms have done is eliminate that. They are feeding it to me through one of two devices, either the algorithm or anyone in my friend's network who wants to pass it along. And, you know, it's like when you see this stuff, you can't, you can't not look. I look at it, you know. It's like, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like if I'm driving down the road and there's an accident on the side, I know I shouldn't rubberneck, but I do. We all do. What they've done, these, these platforms, is figure out a way to like plant the accidents along the road for us. So it's no longer incidental, they're coming to us. So that's what we need to change. One way to change it, what I would do, would be to say, you cannot actually, people have to subscribe to particular things. And they have to resubscribe, say, once a month. Right? They're gonna have to make that effort to get the thing and have it sent to them. And you cannot pass along a live link. You can't cut and paste it. You could send a, a message to somebody like, I just read this great article in Chicks on the Right, you should go read that, but the person's gonna have to go get it. Mm. And my own view is just that little bit of friction, which is still less friction than existed in the system before social media would be enough to substantially dampen down mm. 
the spread of bad information. Now, it will also dampen down the spread of good information because the same thing is true for like legitimate and great stories as well. But I'm less concerned about that, both because the empirical evidence shows that both the vast majority of people still consume mainstream media, and they're not getting at that through the social platforms. They're watching ABC, CBS, or NBC News, or something like that. Um, and you know, if it just took us back to where we were before social media, I would regard that still as a plus if it significantly damped down the negative stuff. Instead, we have this weird notion. No one has any trouble saying you cannot create a virus that will kill people. But we don't yet say you can't create a virus like a technology virus, right? We have this notion that if we can do something technologically, then we have to allow it. So yes, these social media platforms have these algorithms that can do this, but there's no reason that we have to allow it if it's, if its negative effects are as negative as they are. Any more than we should say that you can manufacture a virus that will kill people means we have to let you do it. And so I would think about it that way and just say, we'll just take away that much of their commercial platform. It's still the largest newsstand in human history. People can get what they want, but they have to go get it. They have to make just a little bit of effort. And I think most people won't. That's such a strong, memorable image of planting the prurient stuff to attract us. That's the enraged to engage model. I think it's in the Republic that Plato has the example of the guy who comes across a heap of dead bodies strewn up and says, pluck out my eyes before I look again. It's the definition of prurience. You, you just can't, you want to look away, but you can't which is why Kathleen Sullivan, I guess your former colleague, defined obscenity as stuff that turns you on and grosses you out at the same time. <laughs> so put ensuring that you had to seek the prurient content out rather than placing it right in front of you would help. That stickiness example, which picks up on David's, um, you have to read it, would be really constructive. And I think we're beginning to get some really helpful reforms on the table. Kimberly, what are yours? Yeah, these are all really good ideas. I, f I hate being this late in the in the lineup because it's like a lot of the good ideas are taken. Um, <laughs> there aren't that many. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were. Just I, I actually do like the idea of some sort of identification. Now, it does not have to be the blue checkmark kind of system, which I think I, I do think is problematic. Um, in some ways, but I think that it's helpful in others uh, just to know who you're talking about because I do think that the anonymity of Twitter is problematic, um, especially with the algorithms and its viral nature. And it, it doesn't have to be a name or, or proving who you are, but just some sort of identifier that says to me as I'm reading this, okay, this is an actual person, first of all. Uh, this is a person who is somewhere in the United States. I mean, this is something that can tell me who this person is uh, that is relaying this information so that I can better gauge what I think about it, whether I think that it is good speech or not good speech. One thing I would like to change, and I, don't, I guess it's, it, it changes the speed of information in another direction or maybe keeps the marketplace more open. For me, if I were to leave, I know a lot of people are talking about leaving the platform and you know, if Elon Musk uh, does buy it. If I were to do it, it would be for a specific reason. It's not because I disagree with Elon Musk or I think that it's gonna ruin Twitter or Twitter's not fun or you know it's chaos. The number one reason would be for my own protection and the protection of my family because as it stands now, when you have a blue check mark, you get a little bit more protections when it comes to the kind of speech that isn't disagreeing with an idea in the marketplace of ideas, it's a pointed personal attack. And one big problem with Twitter 
is that just like it invites um, response and, and amplifies and makes certain pieces of information go viral, whether they be true or not, it also provides the perfect spot for what happens a lot, which is an invitation to attack someone personally and uh, for others to join in on that. And as someone who has worked at news organizations that has seen some messages on Twitter that rose to the level of informing authorities, that's something that is very scary to me. I would rather leave the platform than put my family in danger or myself in danger. And that would be a shame if I cannot share my ideas and views and be a part of this marketplace to the extent that it is a marketplace because of the harassment. I know we talked before we can bolster harassment policies, but I also think that it's important to give the users a little bit more protection for themselves in the event that that happens. Um, I, I think both of those would improve it. So central, given the reality of harassment, to protect people against it. And as you say, that's not just content moderation policies, but other kinds of empowering tools. That's yeah. crucial. Ali, what, is, what are your solutions? I, you know, I, I, the, the more we discuss this, the more I, I realize when we distinguish between uh, TikTok and Facebook and, and Twitter and other platforms, they're all engineering platforms, right? They're all, they're all algorithms. They've all decided they're going to focus on a particular different thing. Um, and, and a lot of the solutions to the problems that we're discussing are technological. They're engineering solutions, right? The idea that we could get rid of bots. We don't have to get, a, yeah. get rid of anonymity without being able to get rid of bots. I can, I can recognize a bot. I think most of my followers are bots. Uh, I, I can tell, um, you know, like we can do that without, without taking away your anonymity or your, yeah. your ability to do that. But, you know, I, I, there are some really things that to me as a non-engineer seemed obvious and then suddenly didn't. So uh, we just had this horrible killing in Buffalo in which it was live streamed. And it reminded me of the Christchurch shootings in which they were live streamed. And the calls that morning when I was covering it were uh, YouTube had the technological ability to determine that someone had a gun and was firing it and would have been able to shut this down without it being live streamed and should have. And quite immediately after I started having that discussion on TV, I started hearing from people, particularly black people in America, but also people in other countries uh, where they had had uh, nascent uh, civil rights movements that were put, off, put down by the government saying, our only hope is that someone doesn't shut down a live stream when you see a gun. Mm -hmm. My hope is that if my kid gets pulled over by a cop, they can live stream. Mm -hmm. And if, if all of a sudden the algorithm says, oh, that's a gun, better stop the live stream, the, the, the one hope I've got, or, or people literally in other parts of the world where Facebook and streaming was a very, very important part of the political discourse because governments didn't allow it. That was a remarkable thing. The, 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 Technology and social media as subversive to oppressive authority is a remarkable thing. Te technology as an ability to overcome bad laws or bad, uh, bad law enforcement. So it made me think that it's not that we shouldn't have a rule about a gun and streaming kill killing people. It's that we have remarkable engineering in 2020. Can we figure out what's going on here and institute rules that have nothing to do with the First Amendment? But, ha but, but about perfecting what it is you do. Uh, because you, what you have as social media platforms is something that newspapers didn't have back in the day. You have the ability to tailor, you have the ability to fix problems, you have the ability to make it better and, and really important. The other story, which I, you have heard because I spent some time in Ukraine during the war. At one point I gathered four young people, uh, all of whom identify as Ukrainians, all of whom have parents 
who speak Russian or identify as Russian, which in Ukraine, by the way, is extremely common. Um, and, and until about 2014, it wasn't clear to a lot of young people that they were deciding to be Ukrainians, uh, even if, if they were ethnically Russian. And so these four students, these four young people, have all fallen out with their parents since the beginning of the war because their parents consume entirely Russian media and were parroting to them exactly what was going on. And the kids were saying, but I'm here, I'm telling you, like a missile landed uh, in my town yesterday. What are you talking about? And, and I was having this discussion and one of the young people said, it's, it's a lack of critical thinking, right? What social media has done is it's taken out what little critical thinking we had left and it's put it all on autopilot. And when I asked them, do your parents, either in Russia or Crimea or, or uh, Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine, have the, the knowledge and ability to consume news otherwise? Meaning not just the fare that is served up on state TV or in Russia's case, all TV now. And they said, of course. So everybody in Russia's got a VPN. 100% of people know how to get their information elsewhere. They simply choose not to. So there's no friction in getting the propaganda in Russia. The little bit of friction in getting, in getting proper news exists, but they can overcome it. But we've actually now got ourselves into this, this cycle where people know there's something else out there. They know there's debate. They know there are other ideas. And we see this in our cable news environment right now. Right? We, we know people make choices to say, I'm going to ignore anything that doesn't suit my, uh, my tastes. And to David's point, that's why people don't click on the article. People will, 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 will comment about me, you stupid, bald loser. And my number one response to most people is, did you click on the article? Did you watch the link? I'm happy to have your criticism once you've watched it. But most people don't. They've made the decision already and the velocity of social media allows them to now cash in and get lots of likes about the fact that they just insulted me. When in fact, really, I, I want to talk about what I published. I, I, I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. I'm so remarkably open to the idea that you disagree with me, but you just skip that, that entire part. You skip the entire I disagree with you part because you won't consume the information and you're so in your echo chamber that we have no way to draw you out. That is an engineering problem that can be fixed. Wow, Ali, that is so important uh, as an observation. First, your notions that transparency has costs and uh, benefits like making the police behave better, but this central idea that people are choosing not to expose themselves to alternate points of view and voluntarily putting themselves in echo chambers and filter bubbles, even in Russia, is a reminder that the solution may be partly technological, but also, and I think this is the next round, what are the educational solutions to encouraging people to think for themselves and to take time to listen to differing points of view rather than getting status from associating with one team or the other and defending themselves based on likes and so forth. We're now talking about what should civic education involve. And obviously what we're doing here at the NCC is creating these platforms to listen to unbelievably rich and informative discussions like this, but this is taking an hour and you've got to really concentrate on every word, as I know all of you are doing and I'm doing, and training people to seek this sort of balanced, thoughtful information out is tough. David, you've, all of you have talked a lot about this, but David, if you were designing training for citizenship that would lead people to take the time to listen to differing points of view, what would it look like and at what stage would you intervene? <clears throat> 
Um, so I think early, you start early, and I think one of the things that has been re that has really distressed me, if we can move off the social media pit for just one, one moment, is the proliferation of book bans and what are called anti-CRT laws um, has really distressed me in this, in this standpoint. Um, if you, one, of the, one of the most forgotten Supreme Court cases is called Island Trees School District versus Pico. And this is a, a dealing with the book bans from 1976. It was a 1982 decision. And to cut to the chase, and this is, I think, something that's very important, I'll just leave you with this thought. The purpose of education in the United States of America is not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. What Justice Brennan wrote in his plurality opinion is one of the purposes of education in this country is to prepare citizens for participation in our pluralistic, often contentious society. And I think if you have educators from day one who are saying, I'm not just teaching reading, writing, and, and arithmetic, I'm teaching pluralism, then the, by necessity, by necessity, the teaching of pluralism is gonna expose people to competing ideas, including ideas that may offend. And I think that's absolutely critical from an early age moving forward. Beautiful, teaching for pluralism, gorgeously put, Six minutes left. We always end on time here at the NCC, so these are closing thoughts. Larry, you've thought so deeply about it. What should civics look like? So, I mean, I think I don't have anything to add uh, to that, uh, except for a kind of more pessimistic note. Um, so one is, people are not in echo chambers in this country. I wish it were so, so simple to explain that, but what the empirical evidence shows is they are exposing themselves, in fact, already. It's what they're choosing to believe or listen to. That is to say, and confirmation bias is as old as right. people are. So the question is, why better, is better it word, so yeah. much more powerful right now than it has been in the past? And my own view is that's not a product of education. In fact, we have also a whole lot of research that shows that the more educated people are the ones who are more likely to to satisfy their confirmation bias, that you expose people to information about, say, climate change, and the ones who already believe in it get more, and the ones who don't believe in it get less, and that's more true as they get more and more educated. So although we need to do the education, I, I think at the end of the day it's still a matter of, of leadership and the signals that people are getting from political leadership and media leadership in terms of there actually are more than one view. My fantasy would be Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell come out every day after Congress and have a joint press conference where they go, here's what we talked about today and you know they said this and we said this and we disagree with them but we kind of understand where they're coming from and here's where we are. Mm. And if we could recreate that metaphorically because that's never going to actually happen in that form, that is say that kind of environment I think people will respond to it. But when, when you have a, an environment that's really encouraging people to get into their corners and hate the other side, they're gonna, they're gonna go with it every time, no matter how well educated, although we do need to educate them. Fascinating, great. Kimberly. Yeah, sort of playing on that a little bit, I just think it, it, reinforcing the value of diversity in all forms, not just political diversity, ideological diversity, but diversity in all of its forms. I think one of the most formative things for me, I grew up just outside Detroit um, in Michigan at a time where it, it, Detroit and its suburbs are extremely segregated and that uh, segregation happens quickly, neighborhoods turn quickly. So a few black people will buy uh, houses in a neighborhood and then suddenly you can see the invisible redlining happening and within a decade that entire neighborhood is black. All the white people have moved to this place, all the you know, different ethnic groups have moved to different parts around. But it happened in a way, when I was in middle school, I just got there at that snapshot in time 
where my middle school had black students, it had a, a significant population of Jewish students, a significant population of Christian Arabs, a significant population of fairly affluent white people, a significant population of all this different stuff. So I was learning, I was, it was a significant um, uh, Chinese immigrant population. So I was going to my friend's house eating different food. I was going to bar and bat mitzvahs and didn't know what they were and thought they were fantastic. I was going, I was learning from other people in a way that taught me so much about America and the world in those three years of middle school in a way that was so different than when I went to say law school and it was a class of 400 people and there were seven black students. There were a lot of people learning from me, uh, but it was a lot harder for that to go the other way around, and it was only so much that the seven of us could teach them about things like the impact of race and, and civil rights and uh, things like that. So I think if we prioritize uh, diversity and not make it such uh, a negative connotation, that in itself will encourage people because they have some sort of tangible connection to people that are very unlike them. So the answer to that is, is eliminate diversity as punishment, because that's how some people see it. But what you said was pluralism. I mean, what, that'd be instructive for us if we, if we adopted a slogan at the NCC to say tolerance is bullshit, pluralism is the answer. <laughs> right? Because mm -hmm. we, we struggle with tolerance. Yeah. Forget tolerance. Yeah. We have what you grew up with in your school. Why would you trade that for anything? Right. Why wouldn't you just sit there and say pluralism, which is not a word we toss around a whole lot, but we actually should. We should all decide. Pluralism is what we, what we are ideologically, culturally, ethnically, religiously, uh, in every, on every front. What a, what a bonus. What an amazing tool we have. Forget tolerance. Skip tolerance altogether. Skip the book manning. Skip all that stuff. Start figuring out all that stuff that's, that used to make you uncomfortable, which now longer doesn't make you uncomfortable because you read about it, you understand it, and you understand that's somebody else's life, not your life. Cool. You be you. You know, yeah. pluralism and diversity can be seen as answers as opposed to uh, punishments or, or problems. What a wonderful note to end on cultural pluralism, a phrase that Horace Calvin championed and that Louis Brandeis picked up on at the turn of the last century is such a beautiful expression of the American ideal and a great vision of what we're trying to achieve, which all four of you have modeled in such an exemplary fashion. Thank you, David, Larry, Kimberly, and Ali for starting us off so well. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell. Research was provided by Sam Desai, Lana Ulrich, and Colin Thibault. Please rate, review, and subscribe to With the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people like you from across the country who are inspired by a nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.